Well, good morning. Good morning. It's good to be with you today. If you have a Bible, we're going to start in Luke chapter 5. But before we get there, I want you to pay attention to how you feel in this moment. Fear, anger, sadness, joy. It could be a full spectrum of emotion. God created you and I as emotional beings. The feel something is not inherently bad or wrong. It's what makes you human. There's a church in the New Testament um, in the city of uh, Thessalonica, or as the uh, British across the pond call it, Thessalonica. Um, They experienced discouragement and disappointment and disillusionment for the struggles that they were going through. And the Apostle Paul had words for them that I think are words for us today as well. He writes in 1 Thessalonians Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 13, that the church is to grieve, but not as the rest of mankind who grieves without hope. We as a people of God hold the tension of grief and sorrow and hope. We never lose that. So it's important to feel what you feel and journey through that, but it is also important to do so holding on to hope. What do we do in response to discouragement and disappointment? We grieve, but not as those without hope. And our hope is in Jesus. Our hope is in Jesus. We must always keep our eyes firmly fixed upon him. In every Foursquare church, there's a verse plastered in the space that we meet, and it's the same one that's right back there. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. This church has always been built on Jesus, and it will always remain that way. Yeah. Yeah. So we keep our eyes fixed on Jesus, and this is why today we decided to continue our teaching series about seeing Jesus. You know, today's text was picked weeks and weeks ago, long before we knew that there was an announcement that was going to be made. And that's important for you to know because this message is not a subtweet, there's no subliminal message in it. It is just the gospel of Jesus. But I take great encouragement in knowing that we didn't pick this and hand create this moment, that God has gone before us and that's how he loves us and he cares for us. Today we're gonna read a story about a man named Matthew Levi. He experienced both healing and hope from Jesus. That's the gift that was offered to Matthew and it is the same gift that is provided to us, healing and hope. Like I said, if you have a Bible, Luke 5, we're gonna pick up in verse 27. After that, he went out and noticed a tax collector named Levi sitting in the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he left everything behind. And he got up and he began to follow him. So this story picks up immediately after last week's story. If you remember Pastor Bo, she talked about the teenagers that pulled the tiles off the roof just so that they could bring their friend who was paralyzed to Jesus. Jesus not only forgives this man of his sin, but he heals his body as well. And the paralytic, forgiven, new life in Jesus stands up and he walks. It's no accident that Luke arranges this text next to that story. In this story, we are introduced to Levi, also known as Matthew Levi. Yes, that Matthew, the very one who wrote 
the Gospel of Matthew. His story doesn't begin when he meets Jesus. It just takes a radically altered course because that's what happens when you meet Jesus and you see him for who he is. Your trajectory of your life changes. Now, if you're reading through the Bible, have you ever noticed how tax collector is a category completely in and of itself, right? It's even outside of the title sinners. And it's because it's thought of as these tax collectors were the worst of the worst. There were sellouts to the Romans, extortionists of their own people. If you think the IRS is frustrating, and we love you if you work for the IRS, we do. <laughs> the Roman tax collectors were an entirely different breed. What Rome loved to do is to hire Jewish people that they would use to extort other Jewish people. Um, they would often, uh, and in doing so, they would become the enemies of society. They would take Rome's power and might and their authority and they would pillage the poor. They would pillage the already oppressed and line their own pocketbooks for their own comfort and power and prestige. You can see why the Hebrew people would detest the tax collectors. You can see why they would create a whole different category of evil as a tax collector. These people were not just considered enemies of the people of God, they were considered enemies of God himself. It's not just that they were morally bankrupt, taking advantage of other people, but their actions would have put them in constant contact with Gentiles and constant violation of the law, which means that they would also be seen as ceremonially unclean, unable to come and worship with the people of God. In other words, the tax collectors would be in the category called too far gone. And here comes Jesus, and he messes everything up. <laughs> Levi, a disciple of Jesus, with everything that you just heard, imagine being in the story for a minute. If you were one of Jesus' other's disciples, how would you respond? There was a disciple who was formerly a zealot, they were called dagger men, and they literally existed. Their whole worldview and ideology was to kill people like Matthew Levi, the tax collector. And all of a sudden, Jesus takes these two enemies, he unites them together and calls them brothers. And, and that's an extreme thing that does really happen amongst the people of Jesus. But what about all the other people that were affected by Matthew? These are small villages and towns and people's families would have been um, taken advantage of by a guy like this. Some people in destitute poverty as a result of Matthew's actions. What is Jesus doing? There's also probably a great fear of his disciples that Jesus associating with a guy like this who would tarnish his reputation? Doesn't he know what he's supposed to be doing here? Why is, he, why is he with people like this? Another thought, though. Put yourself in the shoes of Matthew Levi for a minute. Imagine what, I don't know the answer to this question, but imagine um, what would happen in his own heart, how he would be taken to the place where he would literally walk away from everything for Jesus. Maybe, despite his station, deep in his soul, he was craving to be set free, to be healed, to have hope. The life he has chosen will not just be his lot in life. 
The disciples learn as do we. Jesus can see the place of a person's heart, which goes well beyond what we can see from their actions. Matthew's actions hurt his own people, and he would need to make amends for that. Sin has consequence, and yet somewhere deep inside of him, he's crying out to be set free. Jesus bids him to leave behind everything and follow him into, as Frozen 2 would say, the unknown. (laughs) Jesus invites him to be his students, to leave behind the old labels and all that would come with them, and to join this homeless, wandering rabbi. Jesus sees Matthew and he invites him into an entire new way of life. And Matthew goes. Verse 29. And Levi gave a big reception for him in his house. And there was a great crowd of tax collectors and other people who were reclining at the table with them. The Pharisees and their scribes began grumbling at his disciples, saying, Why do you eat and drink with tax collectors and sinners? How does Matthew respond to the call of Jesus? He throws a party. <laughs> which is a unique thing for a social outcast to do. (laughs) Notice that the other guests that are invited to this party are people just like Matthew, tax collectors and sinners. You know, it's likely Matthew didn't have any friends. It's likely that his family also didn't want anything to do with him, disowned him. If they were to have any community at all, it would be only amongst each other. Matthew has means and he has resources. But here we see signs of a changed heart. What are the signs of a changed heart in Matthew? Matthew goes from living for himself to serving others. Immediately he takes his means and resources and he throws a party. He gives away those resources, his power, his position to others. And most importantly, he brings as many people as he possibly can to meet Jesus. This is his response right away. But then there's the response of another crew of people, the Pharisees and the scribes. Remember, Bo talked about them last week. Remember the villain music that plays behind the Pharisees whenever you hear their name mentioned? I think it's dangerous to think of them as just the villains of the story. I think they serve to us as a mirror and a warning. They are offended by the grace of Jesus. They want justice, not God's grace. And there is blood on Matthew's hands. If this man, this is what they would think, is really of God, if he was really the Messiah, he would destroy Matthew, not forgive him. (laughs) And it's interesting that they turn to tell his disciples this as they talk behind Jesus' back, not to him. They don't address Jesus, but rather shame his disciples for following Jesus. This story pulls us into an immense tension, right? If you were actually there in the room and this was all happening, talk about like the party must have gotten no fun whatsoever. And all of a sudden you have these players in the room, these people responding to Jesus in so many different ways. And Jesus speaks, verse 31. And Jesus answered and said to them, it is not those who are well who need a physician, but those who are sick. I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners to repentance. Amen.
This is a revolutionary teaching, you guys. But it begs the question, who are the sick, the sinners in the story? Is it just Matthew, Levi? The other tax collectors, the sinners? What about the disciples? Or how about the grumbling Pharisees and the scribes? It's all of them. Each one of them needs the great physician. Every single one of them is sick. Each one is a sinner needing to repent and turn to Jesus. And so do we. Every one of us in this room. And we've covered this in recent weeks, but sin is the corruption of good. Sinning is living into that corruption. It is destructive to us and to those around us. It is deceptive and alluring and dehumanizing. Sin always has consequences. You know, Jesus doesn't just want us to stop sinning because he said so. (laughs) He wants us to turn away because it is destroying us and all of those around us. He moves towards us for our own good, not just so we can keep a bunch of arbitrary rules or commandments. Everyone needs that. But here Jesus makes it clear that some people won't respond. Now, if you are thinking that you are not the one in need of grace, (laughs) you are who he was speaking to. The Pharisees and the scribes, ironically, because their entire life is built around worshiping the God that they are rejecting in this very moment. This passage leads us to a response. It really does. Who are we in this story? How will we respond to the grace of Jesus? Will we be like Matthew, Levi, or will we be like the Pharisees and the scribes? Matthew's story, uh, it reveals to us that we have hope in Jesus. Here's the good news. You ready for some good news? Your mistakes don't define you. Consequences, yes. Journeying through those consequences of your own sin will be your pathway to healing and wholeness if you choose that. Are you ready for some more good news? Yeah. Not only do your mistakes not define you, but you have a future and a hope. Let's talk about Matthew for a minute. For three years after this, Matthew would go on to be a student of Jesus, watching, learning, observing, soaking in the teachings of Jesus, writing things down, using the abilities and the talents that he has had now for a new purpose. One day, he would go on to compile his own gospel account of Jesus. And get this, it's often referred to, the gospel of Matthew, as the gospel to the Hebrews. The very people he was extorting, now he writes a message of good news for. His life work is radically altered and redefined and transformed because that is what Jesus does with our lives. He goes from a tax collector to an emissary of Jesus writing a gospel account especially for the very people that he hurt. This is the crazy turnaround story of Matthew. (laughs) Matthew's name, Matthew Levi, Levi literally means joined and Matthew means the gift of Yahweh. He sees his life is now joined to the very gift of love and grace and forgiveness that God has offered him. Church history tells us that Matthew would go on to take the gospel to Ethiopia, 
where there he would share the good news of Jesus and eventually be martyred for his faith. Matthew's mistakes and his failures were not the end of Matthew's story. Please hear me when I say this. Your mistakes do not need to be the end of your story either. We're going to take some time now to respond, um, to respond in worship by singing. But before we do, I want to share with you one of my favorite, I say this all the time, favorite, um, lines of the prophet Hosea. It's in chapter 2, verse 14 and 15. He's writing to the people of God who have rebelled and turned their backs on God. But this is the thing about, about God. He's such a gracious God. Even in our own mistakes and failures, he always moves towards us for our own good. And so he sends the prophet Hosea to the people of God, and he says this, Therefore, I am now going to allure her. This is Israel. I will lead her into the wilderness, and I will speak tenderly to her. There I will give her back her vineyards, and I will make the valley of Achor a door of hope. There she will respond as in the days of her youth, as in the days she came up out of Egypt. The valley of Achor was a place of shame and brokenness. It was one of, and named after one of the darkest parts of all of Israel's story. It was to be remembered as a cautionary tale of what happened when Israel gave in to sin and rebellion. Achor literally means trouble. <laughs> the valley of trouble, what a name, right? What once marked the darkest day of Israel's story would be transformed by God into a door of hope. This is the work of God in Matthew Levi's life. This is the work of God in your life too. And hear me when I say this, this is the work of God in the life of this church as well. As we worship, I wanna give you some prompts, some things to think about and pray about. First is this, where do you need healing? What is the work of Jesus that needs to happen in your life? Heal the brokenness, mend what is wounded and make you whole once again. How do you need hope? Like Matthew, this wasn't the end of his story. Your mistakes are not the end of your story, but it can be a new beginning. Where do you need hope? Maybe today is about celebrating the healing and hope that Jesus has already done in your life. Maybe take this time to celebrate that. What is your valley of trouble? And do you believe that Jesus can turn your valley of trouble into a door of hope? B4, um, if you need any evidence that this can happen in your life, <laughs> let me encourage you by this. Look around. What God has been up to in the life of this church is supernatural. And it's been over the decades, through hard seasons and good, Jesus has always been with us. He makes valleys of trouble into doors of hope. He isn't done with your story. <laughs> he isn't done with ours either. The best is yet to come. Will you pray with me? Jesus, be who you are to us in this place. Speak. Your kids are listening. We love you.